and that they do a lot of patronizing with regards to race uh, that you see specifically in Evergreen that the black student is living in a very dangerous world, is very fragile, and so needs all these extra resources and all this extra attention and all these eggshells we're going to sc scatter around the entire campus so that you don't upset this person that can barely even go to college, barely even step out their door without being shot, which is rhetoric that's actually uh, pushed out by faculty at Evergreen. Um, so uh, with regards to college, broadly speaking, there's a lot of different aspects or kind of factors that are creating this situation where now, uh, I can't remember what college, I should be better with facts and names and stuff, but just this past fall, even though it was COVID time and everybody was remote, uh, the students staged this grand protest over something. Uh, I can't remember. Wow. Bryn Mawr, I think it was. They staged this grand protest and they shut down classes for two weeks and it was all about this racist incident. It was like an email or somebody drew a poop swastika on the wall. It happens over and over and over again where this one little incident that could be interpreted as racist is then used as proof that the entire institution needs to be shut down so that we can demand a non-racist safe space. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Horback. Before we get started on this week's episode, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandace.com. From there, you can either sign up for our Patreon account where you get early access to episodes and the occasional bonus content. Or you can click that little link that says buy me coffee. Both things help me out a ton. Another simple way to support the podcast is simply by leaving a five-star review and a comment or sharing it with a buddy. So that's all I have to plug today. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Help me welcome Benjamin Boyce. So um, I was looking at a bunch of your videos this weekend, and it's funny mm -hmm. because you know how sometimes you never know how you get introduced to somebody? Like you just start following them and you can't really recall how that happened and they followed you and you don't really know when that transaction happened. So I don't know how I was introduced to you, but I had no idea of your origin story. Like remember when we were talking, I'm like, are you in New Zealand? And you're like, you have no idea where I came from. Um, so I was watching the series, I'm, I'm not that far into it. I actually had to stop because I got a lot of anxiety. I was like, I can't believe this is real life or this was real life. Um, so for the listeners, I would love, I mean, as detailed as you want to be or not be, or as brief as you want to be, but just kind of your experience at the Evergreen College. Um, like I said, you have an amazing series that I encourage people to check out if they want like a full, um, to fully immerse themselves into yeah. it. Um, yeah. But were you there for, for that? Were you in any of those rooms? Um, okay. Yeah, a lot of the rooms I wasn't in. So what happened was that in the spring of 2017, the Evergreen State College underwent a wild week of protest having to do with accusations that the institution was irredeemably racist uh, and white supremacist and a bedrock of uh, all the evils of Western society. And uh, the students in this state of high agitation went to a number of different authority figures and uh, protested them and live streamed all of that onto the internet. And it, they took over the campus. There was uh, blockading. There was uh, hostage taking. Uh, 
maybe a mild form of hostage taking, but definitely people were blockaded into rooms and not allowed to leave or even to urinate without oversight of the students, including the president of the college. That's terrible. And yeah, it was it was really, really ridiculous during that time. So I was on campus for the second day of protest. The first day of protest, which most people probably know of because it involved a public figure that was able to pinpoint the problems that were going on and uh, articulate them in a very fine manner named Brett Weinstein. He was the first person that they protested. And the reasons why they protested him are because of some emails that he wrote protesting uh, politely, or at least, yeah, no, he said he's protesting this thing called the day of absence, where traditionally black uh, students, faculty, and staff absented themselves from the campus and uh, did workshops off campus. And then uh, so-called white people did workshops on campus about, you know, being white or being of color. And then they would come back on the next day and have a day of presence where everybody's supposed to celebrate diversity uh, and all of its wondrous uh, flowerings of uh, multiculturalism. And uh, But what happened in the wake of the Trump election and also in the wake of much uh, studied uh, redesigning or at least proposals of redesigning the school around concepts of diversity, inclusion, and equity, especially, especially this word named equity that everybody had a different definition of. Mm-hmm. It had something to do with equal outcomes. Um, and they were doing a lot of proposals about, you know, recreating a college that was much more fair, I think would be uh, a more grounded term uh, for everybody, especially students of color and especially black students and especially, uh, I guess, Native American and Pacific Islander students, but mostly it was about the black students. And uh, the proposals that they made regarding that were based on data that was, and I have recordings of this from uh, the head of statistics, the data that they used to show that Evergreen was racist was fallacious. They cherry picked the data to show what they wanted. The actual outcomes include, the the negative outcomes actually include a lot of low-income first-generation white male students, and they scrubbed that out because the white male, uh, as was evinced in seminar, workshop, lecture, and class that I took over the course of my four and a half years there, the white male was, you know, the dominant force and the, uh, you know, the vector of oppression. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, but even though, you know, the white male is not being served by this institution, especially the low income white male that was kind of hushed up to to boost up that this particular group, uh, they wanted to reorganize resources to attend to. So Brett Weinstein was involved along with other teachers in arguing against this. And he's a very progressive man. So he states time and again that he's for equity. I don't know exactly what he means by equity, and I don't want to put words into his mouth, but he definitely thought of a different version of equity, or at least he was thinking about the outcomes, the real outcomes of these initiatives. And when the college decided to reverse the day of absence and invite and actually require students to segregate on based on race and white students to go and participate in, in these off-campus seminars, and the content of these seminars, the content of these seminars for white people was about their privilege and about their complicity in the oppression of everybody else. 
and owning up to that. So mm-hmm. it was incredibly uh, dogmatic, as we can see in other aspects of our society now. So the students decided to protest Brett Weinstein first, and they filmed that all, and Brett had connections in social media land, and the way that the students protested was over the top. You can see that you really have to see how they're acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is crazy-making and anxiety-making, and it, it, you know, it might... Um, it might uh, be bad for your blood pressure, but it might inoculate you to any struggle sessions that you might stumble into in your day-to-day life. Uh, but they they protested Brett Weinstein. Then the cops uh, were called because somebody said that they have a prof- uh, professors being trapped. Uh, so the cops responded to check that out. And the students rushed the cops. The cops moved the students out of the way. And therefore, that was their claim to police violence. Uh, the cops kind of just uh, just kind of let the students go. And then the students went and they're like, well, what do we do next? It's all on video. What do mm-hmm. we do next? Well, let's go to the, you know, let's carry on. Let's keep this going. So they go to the ad- admin uh, building, the library admin building, and they just continue just going crazier and crazier and crazier and crazier. And all live stream, all live stream. So there were rooms that I was in that I was witnessing this. Towards the end of the documentary, which is a very long documentary, uh, there's a room that I'm actually in, a class that I'm in, where a struggle session happens, where white people are told to shut the F up. Um, We're told that our silence is killing, literally killing the students of color. And then when we ask for clarification, we're told to shut the F up. So we're like, well, what do you want? What do you want? And they just kind of want to tear us down and do the struggle session thing where they browbeat people. It's, It's all on tape. It's all on tape. So mm-hmm. at first it seemed really ridiculous because Evergreen's Evergreen's uh, activist tendencies are always kind of kind of silly to me. Um, sorry to say, but you know, all these posters and these slogans and you know, like they they had this one the epitome of Evergreen. They had this free the nipple protest. <laughs> and I don't even think that there's laws in Washington about uh the the female breast. Um, no, I think you can be kind of naked. Yeah. Yeah. But, but they still wanted to protest that. So they all stood there and took off their shirts and, uh, you know, all these 22 year old girls topless, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, which is something. Um, and then, (laughs) and so they get that, all that attention and then they use that attention to, to berate males and say, men, you're sexualizing us. And it's disgusting how you look at us. And you're like, okay, like there's one side of the story and uh, I'm not going to say anything, but those are some very ripe bosoms that you have on display, I'm sorry, <laughs> displaying them to get attention right. in order to do what with that attention. So, right. um, you know, it just kind of let that level of, you know, young people experimenting with being serious, experimenting with having a lot of meeting, meaning in their life and changing the world. And there's a lot of rhetoric about changing the world at Evergreen. And when the new president came on in 2015, he explicitly made the college's activist wing, the, he put them in power specifically around issues of race. Mm. And all these workshops started happening. I have all the footage. I was on camera in those. I was in those rooms. And those rooms were very ritualized. It was just like being in a church, but a very, very boring, sanctimonious church. Like it was all about oppression and solving oppression and everybody had like these witness statements and then they had these drum circles and they had all these sermons and stuff and then they'd show you the data 
And the data, like you could obviously see that Evergreen's doing really, really good with regards to students of color. Like mm-hmm. they're increasing ahead of the national average and they're having a, a better reportage uh, about the uh, happiness of, of these students. But they're like, as you can see, you're, you're looking at the data, as you can see, the dominant culture is in the way and we need to, you know, now is the time to really change ourselves and stuff like that. So there was a, a culture within the faculty and the staff that was uh, supported and promoted by the president, by the very top, of making everything about race, about, about implementing all of these workshops and seminars. D'Angelo, uh, Robin D'Angelo, white fragility woman, she mm-hmm. was brought on campus and she gave like two or three very long uh, explanations about you know how white people need to shut up and listen to her um, because you know they're white blah 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 mm-hmm. and uh, there was never argument about that whenever argument came up it was very quickly squashed it was squashed within the faculty and I have all the emails where they would dogpile on anybody that questioned their axiomatic principle that Evergreen was a racist place filled with white supremacy, even though it was the, it's the most or was the most progressive place, at least in Washington, which is a very progressive place mm-hmm. already. So the culture was already there at the faculty level and it broke out at the student level. And what you see in the protest, and I'll wrap it up and we can go on from here, was that the, the, actual power structure, the authority of the president was completely non-existent because they were doing everything that he and all of the college taught them to do. And they were not equipped to put a lid on this mm-hmm. or to even help them articulate themselves better. And so all that footage went out on the internet and Brett Weinstein went out on the internet and, and spoke about it too. And then I eventually said, okay, listen, internet, this isn't just about a bunch of crazy young people. Young people are crazy. This is Mm -hmm. about the ideas that were put into the young people's head that enabled them to act crazy and disabled the administration from actually controlling that, but rather only conceding to it, up to and including uh, allowing them to tell him and then escort him to the potty. So, (laughs) See, and so for me, I'm just so curious I guess to the environment that led the students to have, I guess, the confidence and the power to do these things. Because like I said, when I was watching those videos, I, I kind of had to stop a couple of times because I, I felt so anxious. I was, I've been to university and in no way would that have flown where I went to school. Just wouldn't have had, it would have been shut down within, you know, probably 20 minutes. And this went on for a week. And then a lot of people have the idea of saying, well, it's just college kids and that's what they do. They're trying to find themselves and find purpose. And, you know, college kids always have been activists and protesters. Like that's just part of that experience for those years. But Mm -hmm. you're seeing this bleed out into society now, into big business and into government and into regulations and, you know, media, media. You can't, you can't kind of turn your head without bumping into it. And I think it's really important for people like you that are, that have this platform and you're having these difficult conversations and bringing awareness to these topics that a lot of people are like, this doesn't affect my day to day. So I don't have time to pay it any mind. And 
I was one of those people. I haven't been in a couple of years because I'm like, I see it. And my husband's like, you need to calm down. This is stressing you out. What are are you going to do about it anyways? But um, we see these effects with raising our child and, you know, trying to figure out what school he's going to go to and what's it going to be like for him to grow up. So I guess where I'm going with that is how did we kind of create this new normal? Because it kind of is, right? Like you see Hmm. the the Coca-Cola thing that went viral of what like a month yeah. ago or it was like Where be less white, white people need to apologize yeah be less white. <laughs> like you can't say that to any other group like be less gay be less asian be less black you can't say that so it shouldn't be okay in the hmm. reverse right um and then where are we going wrong like what do we how do we correct course i know it's, it's a lot yeah, i don't know it's that's really really big. I mean that that's why I I have hours and hours and hours of conversations with now hundreds of people like talking mm-hmm. through this and talking about like different tiny little aspects of it. Right. Big thing is education. Big thing is uh, you could probably look at the economics of this. You can look at uh, kind of a theory of the managerial elite and how the real the people who really kind of control and steer. Our government and America at large are a class of unelected citizens that have all been programmed through universities. They all have university degrees. And I think that one uh, explanation of diversity, equity, and inclusion as a dogma is a way to gatekeep and to push out dissenters and push out like people who would rock the boat, which is actually what they were saying at Evergreen. They don't want people rocking the boat. They're going to call you out. Or you need to get off if you're going to rock this boat. This is just how we do things. And diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's a set of speech codes uh, that, that you memorize. You, know, you have to memorize your privilege and your oppression, and you have to like confess it all. So you're kind of handing over, in a way, you are handing over your conscience to the HR representative or to that trainer, that trainer is teaching you a new morality with new vectors that you might not have known before if you grew up in other climes. This is this was incubated and designed within academia. And it has all of this kind of uh, these ideas that have been laundered through all these papers, talking about it over and over and over again, all these rhetorical maneuvers. Robin D'Angelo herself perfected her rhetoric or her religion through giving seminar after seminar after seminar and seeing where people would resist her and figuring out all these tricks to put down that resistance, all these mm-hmm. Kafka traps, which basically is, uh, she, she'll call you a racist and you're like, well, I'm not a racist. Like, and she'll say, well, that proves that you're a racist. See, your denial of racism is proof of your racism and you're fragile about that. And and the irony is is that the entire that ent- her entire network of thought is incredibly fragile to actual logical critical uh, examination. And there's this wonderful man, wonderful writer Jonathan Church who's gone through I don't have his book up now, but you can look up Jonathan Church. He's done a series of essays and articles and at least one book, another book coming out just dismantling uh, Robin D'Angelo and showing how it's a nest of logical fallacies that that aren't don't line up to reality and actually mm-hmm. exclude you from connecting to reality. So, in on one level, one line of attack or criticism, 
would be how it's being implemented at the corporate level. Uh, then another uh, question is how is it Im being implemented virally through social media, through uh, public pressure, through uh, peer groups? And you can go through and you can look at all these different small collectives of individuals from knitting communities uh, to the atheist community to all these different communities once this critical social justice stuff comes in. And that's the word I'll use, but we can you know, talk about it in all these different uh, fashions. One fashionable way of calling it is, is wokeness or wokeism, but mm -hmm. I, I've been told that that has a pedigree that has an authentic side to it. So I'm just going to call it a technical term right now. Uh, but once that enters into a group, mm -hmm. it shifts the dynamics of the group into this, uh, well, one, it, it purges all dissent. It, it, it attaches all this meaning to all these symbols and calls all these things racist or bigoted or phobic in one way. And then mm -hmm. it destroys that individual's belonging to that group and tightens that belonging of the group. It's basically this, this virus that turns everything into a cult in a way, mm -hmm. uh, by which I mean a lot of policing of behavior, very narrow lens of what's acceptable and, and no room for debate. And it's infecting churches and uh, synagogues. And I don't know if it's really gotten into the Muslim community, but it is very generational and so there's there's one way of it traveling through the Gen X and the boomer mind, which mm -hmm. it is. And then mm -hmm. there's another way in which it's traveling through the Gen Z and the millennial mind, which are more speeded up because of their access to social media. And then there's the whole education question. Right. Yeah. So when I was watching your your videos, I think I, I got to I almost completed the third episode in that series um, I'm going to, I'm going to finish it's, I'm going to have to do it in doses because it, it blows my mind that these people are going to university, right? Because that's a privilege. A lot of people don't get to experience. Like most people don't get to graduate from college. You are already at an advantage compared to most of the citizens in this country. And you're going to sit there and shout about how unfair life is and how you're in literal violence. And I was curious like, well, I don't see any literal violence happening except for this mob mentality. And then they're trying to explain that the privilege is showing up because the, I think someone had called the cops, whether it was like a professor or another student, but the it was cops, just it was, student. Yeah. Someone had called the cops and like, well, that's a sign of, of your privilege. And they have mace. And why would they have mace? And it's like, if you know anything about group mentality, the mace probably needs to be there because it just takes one person to act out and then all of a sudden that group thing happens and then you're in a really dangerous position. Um, mm -hmm. But as I'm watching it, like none of this makes sense. They're asking um, to feel included or to feel safe. And that's really gray, right? Like what does that mean? How can you, I guess, put that in a tangible way? Like you're, you're in charge of your inner state. Um, so there, it's just like these roundabout arguments and we'll be like, well, you need to help us. And I'm like, well, how can we help you? And they're like, you need to shut up. I'm like, how are we paying Robin D'Angelo $5,000 a session to make us- It's more like 15. 15, <laughs> holy cow. Well, she's up to 100,000 now. Jeez. Okay. So whatever she's charging to essentially yeah. create this rift between employees or students and staff- um, mm -hmm. Where do you see the future of higher education? Are we going to stop paying for college? Because I right now, I'm not a cynical person, but I don't see 
universities having a leg to stand on if they don't make a swift change because you leave with a hundred grand plus in debt for what to have your kid hate themselves, hate the world, hate their neighbor. Mm -hmm. What are you paying for? That is that that's another. So just college alone. And I think that 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 dovetails with what I was saying about the managerial elite. So over the last, what, 30 years or so, since the government started subsidizing student loans, colleges, it just screwed up the market. So colleges saw that they could charge more. And what would they do with all that money? They pumped it into buildings, a lot of infrastructure, but most of that money went to administration, which Mm -hmm. is, again, the managerial elite. And the actual power in the institutions has switched from faculty and has kind of gone to the student, but via the student as the consumer. And then there's all this infrastructure that makes sure to uh, insulate the college from, you know, I guess lawsuits or mishandling of this precious resource called the student, but which is just a bunch of money that the mm-hmm. student is now indebted with. But they do a lot of designing of the student experience. There's entire fields of study and uh, administrative positions that are specifically around designing the best experience for the student. I think it's usually called student affairs or something like that, but every college has one. And what they do is they do all the planning of the events and helping the students manage their behavior. But in order to help students manage their behavior, which would mean like if there's something that happened, an altercation that happens between the students to, you know, for liability liability purposes, they put a bunch of training on how to act at the begin, at the beginning of the school year. And so they'll have these really interesting, I mean, anthropologically interesting, uh, you know, seminars on consent around how people should interact sexually. And, you know, so you have all these weird kind of bureaucratization of that part of human experience, which is good from the administrative level because they say, well, we taught you to ask every five minutes uh, where your hand should go next and where it should be and blah, 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 blah. Um, but what are was that that actually due to the effect of people actually like experiencing and exploring that, I think, mostly nonverbal activity is now imposed mm-hmm. with all this bureaucratic mindset. Also, that safetyism about that your feelings matter and that if you feel unsafe, you have to stand up and then we will rally a bunch of resources around making you feel safe. Uh, That safetyism was very evident in the Evergreen protest, but at colleges at large, and Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Hyatt wrote a very wonderful book uh, called Cuddling of the American Mind, which is largely based on Twingy. I can't remember her first name. Her her art or her book called iGen, I believe it's called, and she talks about specifically about the rise of social media and that effect on the student. But Lukianoff and Height talk about just the attitude towards you know keeping that child safe uh, has all these different consequences down the road and actually creates a fragile psychology later on mm-hmm. down the road. It's an anti-resilient mentality that the college now reinforces, and there's a lot of there's a lot of coddling going on, specifically at Evergreen uh, and elsewhere in the administration and in the faculty. They see these damaged birds that they're ter- caring for, and that they do a lot of patronizing with regards to race. Uh, that you see specifically in Evergreen that the black student 
is living in a very dangerous world, is very fragile, and so needs all these extra resources and all this extra attention and all these eggshells we're going to scatter around the entire campus so that you don't upset this person that can barely even go to college, barely even step out their door without being shot, which is rhetoric that's actually uh, pushed out by faculty at Evergreen. Um, so uh, with regards to college, broadly speaking, there's a lot of different aspects or kind of factors that are creating this situation where now, uh, I can't remember what college, I should be better with facts and names and stuff, but just this past fall, even though it was COVID time and everybody was remote, uh, the students staged this grand protest over something. Uh, I can't remember. Wow. Bryn Mawr, I think it was. They staged this grand protest and they shut down classes for two weeks. And it was all about this racist incident. It was like an email or somebody drew a poop swastika on the wall. It happens over and over and over again, where this one little incident that could be interpreted as racist is then used as proof that the entire institution needs to be shut down so that we can demand a non-racist safe space. And the way that Bryn Mawr or whatever this college was that underwent this just this past fall, the president did this apology. Like the, the college has this down pat now. It's become a rite of passage. Students go to college to protest, to get their cred, to have the status of a protester now. Mm -hmm. And the college is more than happy to write all the apologies and stop the classes and implement all this training and all this stuff that doesn't have to do with learning an actual skill. It has mm -hmm. to do with learning a morality. And so the, the colleges have returned back to what they originally were, which is a institution of a religion that trains you to be, you know, it, it has all this science and stuff kind of going outward and this writing and rhetoric, but centrally it's there to program you how to be a good Christian or how to be a good critical social justice activist. So it's reverted back to kind of a religious institution. Um, so I lost probably the last 10 seconds of okay. what you were saying. Um, if you want to reiterate that really, really quick. Funny. Yeah, it like it, glitched really quick. Colleges, Western colleges had originally been uh, an extension of the church uh, with different aspects of, yeah, of, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of weird, crusty aspects of college are actually descended from the Middle Ages. Uh, just these weird ceremonies and why they wear robes and then all this weird power structure stuff. It descends okay. directly from the Middle Ages. And during the Middle Ages, they originally were all built around Christianity. And then you had all these disciplines that radiated out from Christianity, but it was principally a seminary. Uh, mm. And, and so, if you wanted to do a trade, you would actually work in an industry to get the skills. Okay. You know, right. That makes trade. sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. So again, I guess, would you, where do you think there's something more nefarious at play? Like what's the end goal? Because when you, I mean, if there's, there's someone back there with like these puppet strings, like what's happening? Because you know that for someone to thrive, you can't make them feel like a victim. You can't make them feel um, scared and on edge and angry. No one's going to thrive in that mental environment because you're in survival at that point, right? It's almost like they're purposely pushing certain groups into that survival mentality. Um, and if you just look at, you know, um, that hierarchy of needs, right? You can't get kind of get to that next level until the other one, the basic levels are met. And it's almost like they're forcing certain groups below that level. Um, mm -hmm. 
again, what's that end goal? Why would you want someone to be in that space? Like, how does that benefit anybody? Yeah. Yeah. There are so many different factors into what is going on. In 2020, we had a lockdown, right? Yeah. You remember that? Uh, I feel like some of the country is still there. I'm fortunate enough to be in North Carolina, so we're oh, you pretty, guys are free. We're pretty open, yeah. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had that lockdown, and everybody was concerned about death, and death was our highest value. Avoiding death was our highest value. Mm-hmm. And then George Floyd happens, and all of a sudden, our highest value of avoiding death was completely set aside. And the most important value was justice and equity and Black Lives Matter and racial equality and dealing with the sins of America and all of that stuff that had been in the wings, kind of getting ready in academia and then being played with at the HR corporate level, right? And being put into the heads of the students, it Mm -hmm. all just snapped together. There was this pent up aggression because everybody was on lockdown, all these young people like disassociated from school, they couldn't do their tiny little protests at their little colleges. They, mm. But they could do it all together and take mm. over cities now and yeah. all stand up on principle. And then you have the whole effect of uh, the elite and Trump in this pitted battle to get the, the elite wanted power back to the elite and Trump was the outsider and they needed to oust him. So there was a lot of dynamics around pushing that I think that there was a lot of dynamics of not not tamping down on that violence because they thought it made Trump look bad and he would tamp down on it and mm-hmm. then they could call him a fascist like they'd already been. So there was this there was this game on the media level that was playing out that was kind of you know saying mostly peaceful, mostly peaceful as cars Ignore are the burning in the building. back. Yeah. Yeah. Um there there's that aspect of it, but you're 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 it feels like you're trying to get somewhere deeper. And I I think that the easiest way to, pardon me, this is an easy way. It's tired though, and it needs more explanation, but it does make sense that we have entered into a secular society Mm -hmm. where uh, people, which was good to a certain extent where we have this understanding that the public sphere is divorced from belief. Everybody gets to have their own belief. Mm -hmm. And that kind of led to people just not wanting to have belief, not wanting to participate in that really boring thing of going to a church with these outdated ceremonies and these funny little stories. And, you know, but that those specifically, just specifically speaking about Christianity. Mm -hmm. So much of what we are as a society is actually kind of rooted in these old stories and these old ideas. And they're actually iterations of these ideas uh, going up, ideas around justice, ideas around fairness, ideas around individuality, uh, equality under the law. All these ideas are kind of rooted in these kind of premature stories and these these wisdom traditions and and then they're they're dressed up in these ceremonies that sync everybody up uh to you know they sync up a, a community to being a community by going through the same ceremony and then there's this little doctrine doctrinal stuff that that gives you a story and gives you an explanation and tells you to be better let's just give a very a good version of the church. It's not always like that. It's not perfect at all, but it's just encouraging you to be better. And I was talking to my dad a few weeks ago. He was 
talking about he he's a pastor um and he would he was talking about being in a room with a bunch of other men and he's the pastor and they're all trying to be better and there's a millionaire and and a homeless person or somebody very poor and that status was gone because they were all equal under god they were all trying to be better they were all kind of wrestling with their imperfection right Mm -hmm. in that way and and that that sort of focusing on something transcendent or something deeply personal allowed those outer differences to kind of be released for that time and all that class consciousness and all the tensions of that kind of operating and kind of makes a community and mm -hmm. and that's all built in so there's all these structures that were in the church that weren't updated i think that the church is really guilty for not really updating it um, and, and so people just kind of left it because we had TV, we had other ways of getting together. We had all these other communities, but there's still a latent desire on a community level for some sort of religion. Now, individuals mm -hmm. can be secular, but once these religious tendencies start to vibrate, they, they, they match up with other people and, and it starts, people start to vibrate and in this religious fervor of wanting to do something meaningful, of being together in this community, doing something real in the world. And without a story there that they all have to land on, any old story will work. And the thing about critical social justice, it's kind of all these ideas and they're all about systemic oppression and implicit bias and the need for justice and some some marxism kind of conflict theory there's the good guys and the bad guys and the good guys are the are the are the have nots and the bad guys are the haves and so we need to we need to overthrow that and then there's these racial things and these gender things and this sexuality thing and and then of course we're america so we're always kind of protesting we're always mm -hmm. kind of trying to upgrade our society so there's that in our blood and stuff but there wasn't there was missing at the evergreen state college i heard so much christianity but only one half all the sin all mm -hmm. the guilt all the confession all the shame, no redemption other than submission to mm -hmm. another person. And then, and then uh, confession that the world itself is evil. It's very Gnostic. The world itself is this corrupted system. It's a patriarchal, heteronormative capitalist structure that's excreting all of our reality and, and hogging all our authenticity. All our authenticity to ourselves, and then forcing us to judge each other and look down on each other and stuff. So there's that, which is like a God. And then there's all this implicit stuff like sin, like, oh, I'm, I have all these uh, biases. And even if I'm black and I disagree, that means I have internalized white supremacy. It stains mm -hmm. everything. Everything is racist. That's Robin D'Angelo again. So this, this religious structure kind of comes in there and there's nothing else there in, in that in that space between people mm -hmm. insofar as religion isn't just a personal relationship with your authenticity your soul and your god but but there's this community structure between people that kind of like the religion that was there was eroded and it, it probably was outdated it probably needed to be really uh, just kind of dilapidated so it can rise again. But what we have is a false religion rising in that gap. That is the deepest, that's like the beginning of the deepest level for me of this. And then trying to figure out that level of that, of, of just basic human experience in America at this time. I think that's an amazing analogy. Um, 
I've heard it compared to a religion before, but not at that depth. And I think it no. makes a lot of sense. I think we as human beings always, like you said, have that need or that that kind of void that we want to fill with something, something bigger than us. Um, and right now it's very, it's not in vogue to say that you're religious. Like it, the closest you can really say and get away with it is saying that you're spiritual, right? Like a lot of people are like, oh, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. And <clears throat> sorry, in my experience, I think we're all kind of talking about the same thing, right? But there's, um, mm. there's a what lot of, thing? I think that we're all saying that there's a God. And for some reason, we don't want mm. to say, we can't say God anymore. So that's why we say, uh, yeah. some people say source now, <clears throat> some people will spirit. say spirit or the universe, yeah. and you have to call it by these other things. Otherwise you're like, Ooh, you know, people are gonna think I'm weird or I'm going to be more of an outsider or no one's going to take me seriously, but we're all talking about the same thing. Even when you talk about different religions, if you're talking about Nirvana or Allah or whatever, mm. I think we're all just talking about this, this more pure force that's bigger and greater mm. than us that we're trying to essentially return to hmm. i don't know maybe i'm like over generalizing no but i that's, like that uh, yeah, yeah that's I, my take I, on it it jives with me so to like argue about these these words that you know that are dirty or christianity is bad or being jewish is bad or being muslim is bad all of these we're all for the most part in the purest sense we kind of agree i think more than we disagree um and i what i think is interesting too is there's almost like an intrinsic shame that a lot of us have. And I think that's, hmm. so if you talk about the medieval times when you would repent and you would take like a whip, whip yourself, right. Yeah. To, that to, was a, that was a particularly outlier case that did happen. It wasn't always there, but there was confession and there was, I've watched uh, too many movies. A, yeah. Well, <laughs> but, but that guilt, um, channeling that shame and channeling that guilt through a process of collective, conscience building not consciousness but conscience building and uh just just the act of confession itself where you go to a priest you share your sins and borrowing from jonathan peugeot here and then your sins are kind of dispersed through the community because the the priest kind of takes them onto himself and then and then so so you're not holding all of that inadequacy mm -hmm. to yourself and all that mm -hmm. mistake to yourself yeah okay, and then what we're what we're missing now is is that road to redemption or that grace. So that's what's mm. missing in the social justice yeah. version or in the critical race version, because it's almost like they, they will demand an apology if you do anything that goes against the dogma. But then once you apologize, you're still canceled. Like right now, I like tweeted the other day. I was like, are we trying to cancel a state right now? Is that what's happening with yeah, what Georgia? Which state? Oh, with Georgia. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I can't remember who I was. It was some commentator. And he was like, it's no coincidence that they call it the master's tournament. And I was like, you are reaching. And like, oh, okay. it's, it's kind of, it's like that race lens that people talk, talk about. If yeah. you put these glasses on and you look for racism, everything's racist. Or if you look yeah, for sexism, yeah. everything's sexist. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, I don't know. And I always thought when I heard masters, I thought of mastery, right? Which is something... Yeah that a lot of us don't have or aren't even trying to get, which I think is a lot of the lack of purpose, which leads to everyone being mad and everyone going on social media and everyone being in a constant state of outrage. So I thought of mm. it in a positive way. It's like mastery, right? Like these are the world's best, most elite golfers. Mastery. 
right? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Which is based on merit, which is a problematic concept. In that's a the dirty word. Scheme yeah. Of, yeah, of critical social justice or whatever it is. Uh, merit, they don't like that. Because that, heard... that would include too much personal responsibility and obscure all the accident of birth, which there, there's something to be said about, you know, we're not. We're not all bootstrapping ourselves. We come from lineages and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard Sam Harris break that down, and he what was he saying? He was basically saying you can't really take um, you can't take credit for almost anything. It, it, he went like way too far on the other side of it. So I'm like, well, there's still a lot of hard work and decision making, and you know, making the right choices. Like just because you're talking about an athlete, right? Just because you're born six foot eight that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the MVP and yeah, the, make the, a career out of it to speak of that strict determinism uh which is i guess uh, sam's a strict determinist or very outgoing determined. everything's determined everything's predetermined basically uh you don't have any free will it's all kind of just an accident and uh, you're you're not aware of your decisions your decisions are being made by all these neural networks and etc 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 the the problem with thinking that way, you can, again, the, the individual can abstract themselves into the state where they're objectively viewing the world as all these accidental things. But between people, if that, if that becomes dominant, that we're all just accidents, and that becomes the, the, the substance between us in our, in our secular, between one individual and another, if that becomes the way that we're, the soup that we're swimming in, you get these really weird uh, emergent properties of people calling themselves bodies, right? the black bodies, and and talking mm. about the, their own selves as though they are. And, and that's a word that's used in the Evergreen protest. And it is a protest lens or critical social justice lens where they distill everybody into bodies. And they, they talk about the, the harm that's being inflicted by the system on the body. But it, in action, once you start thinking of yourself as a body and you're no longer responsible, you can act however you want. You can be as mm-hmm. shameless as possible. You're not free from shame. That shame will always be haunting you because you are a conscious creature. But mm-hmm. in that moment, you can be shameless. And, and a lot of the evergreen footage is just completely shameless because they're acting on a global scale. They're no longer acting as humans towards humans. They're acting as bodies in this great historical pinball game where they're going to smash through these structures and create, I guess, something better that they call community love, whatever that looks like, which is actually in practice is just infinite guilt and shame and scapegoating everybody, putting all the guilt on one person. I was going to say, there's not a lot of love in those those videos. Yeah, yeah. That's not how you get to love. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know how love – I think love is another uh, concept that could be uh, easier – more expansive and more relatable term uh, to kind of flesh out the concept of God and how such a concept, since such a universal concept or such a concept as universal love being the glue that imperfectly kind of ties people together, but at least provides the conditions for what, what conditions are there if there's love between us as opposed to, I guess, determinism or, you know, racism oppression and stuff if you start looking at that can can love embrace all of that pain and suffering better than all that seeing all that oppression and pain and suffering can embrace love can you ever get to love through pain and suffering can you get to pain and suffering through love i think love's actually more powerful 
actually. Oh, 100%. Even if you look at David Hawkins, um, like his, his hierarchy of emotions. So he breaks everything down into a frequency. And, hmm. and I mean, this is science. Everyone always thinks that it's crazy when I talk about this or that it's like woo woo, but it, it's measurable. So <laughs> love is, I want to say the second to highest vibration hmm. that you can experience. I think joy is above that. Oh, or maybe it's, yeah. it's joy or peace. Um, but yeah, if you get down into like the anger or the apathy or jealousy, all of those yeah. are super, super low. And that's, that's where you actually start. If you, if you're familiar with Joe Dispenza, that's where you actually start to get sick. Your body actually starts to get sick. So okay. things like cancer yeah. can start to grow and autoimmune well, issues. I know certainly society gets sick when it's mm-hmm. run on anger and mm-hmm. greed and envy. And those things will always be there, but they need to be put into, uh, you know, they need to be ruled by principles which would principles would be something that serves love, joy, and peace. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but once anger becomes the rule, I mean, and so to, to kind of just ping back to what you asked me that I didn't answer, I was on campus. It was really silly at first, but it got really bad and not terrifying, but really bad. Like, and I, I because we're in a safe space right now, we can talk about energy. The energy of the place was the most darkest closest thing to the palpable i don't say this word lightly and i mean it lightly it was evil there was something mm-hmm. evil and not during the protest but afterward there was a, a spirit over mm-hmm. that just was everywhere i could barely breathe that's why i started making the videos because i'm like i have to i have to get yeah. this out of me i i could barely breathe because it was just so heavy and oppressive mm-hmm. and and if i was walking around campus and i i one one time i was walking to get my coffee on campus and i saw a black man and I got really scared. I'm like, oh God, it's gonna, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get attacked now. And and I looked at him like, this is crazy. I never ever want to think this way. And right. I never did until mm-hmm. this godforsaken progressive college taught me that, taught everybody mm-hmm. that that's the order of the day. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was the exact opposite of love. And that's the weird thing, because I was all, at all these trainings. I'm like, you're trying to, you're trying to teach charity. And you're trying to teach respect, but you're not using those words and you're not producing that thing that I think is what you want. Mm-hmm. And, and so it just, it crumbled. It was vice. I don't know. That's like the weird kind of narrative poetic side of my story, uh, experientially with it. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. It's like certain people can walk into a room and they're either energizing it and making it brighter or they can suck all the air out of it. And I think when you have that many people that are on the same frequency, what is clearly of anger and clearly of fear and everything that's on that lower vibrational hierarchy scale, it makes sense that that's going to kind of radiate out and kind of linger. It doesn't just dissipate as the people leave. It doesn't dissipate because the camera's blocked. It's just there. And all of these things have a ripple effect. And where I see all everyone going wrong, everyone going wrong, whether it's these professors or these CEOs that are bringing in people to to teach these, you know, equality seminars or whatever they are, is they're letting everyone stay there and just apologizing. Like when I was watching, I, I think it was the ep- episode one, maybe it was going through the lineup of I think different professors, and they were essentially apologizing for who they were. They're like, "I'm so sorry, I'm privileged, I'm." 
sit, I hate the word cis, like I refuse to use it to describe anyone, but they called themselves, I'm cis and I'm hetero and I'm white and I'm a man. So I've got the trifecta of all of the, you know what I mean? Like apologizing for these immutable characteristics. Um, And then kind of, I guess you're, it's almost like giving the leash to a, a violent dog instead of correcting the behavior you don't want to see or hmm. um, trying to rehabilitate it with love or like there's all these other approaches hmm. you can you can do but just saying I'm gonna take my hands off of the wheel and let you steer the boat I think is the absolute worst thing that you can do I think we can acknowledge that someone might feel all of these things like maybe you feel that yeah. you have had a bad experience hmm. in college or you've had a bad mm-hmm. experience in the workplace but how do we get to a place of loving each other and how do we get a pl- to a place of understanding mm-hmm. and if you can't get there not your reality is not going to change it doesn't matter how i how i act or how i behave you don't get to a place of love your reality is not going to change so again it takes that accountability out right like your mindset is your reality it's not me it's not the environment it's your mindset and for some reason no one's addressing that it's not you create your own reality yeah yeah well the 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 locus of it's called hyper hypo hypo agency it's something that um a good friend of mine i wish she still produced videos she doesn't she retired uh her tag name was alice void very very sharp canadian uh philosopher uh, and uh, she did a great video about hypo agency specifically criticizing feminism for make making females always the weakest one like really leaning into the female is historically oppressed and all of her decisions are made for her it eventually puts all the agency or all the intention outside you don't have any anymore because you're just a part of the system and that leads to a bunch of I guess, sicknesses of behavior and stuff. And also like just speaking about feminism, that kind of obscures a lot of the, the less obvious powers of, of communication and of kind of steering the boat from the back that historically, I think women did a lot of, but weren't written down in song, weren't really detailed uh, because my supposition is that women were transmitting a lot of knowledge verbally that wasn't actually written down until later on in history. Um, so that sense of uh, hypo agency or uh, displacing the individual's uh, locus of control of their environment and also of their self onto the environment, it leads to it leads to a lot of powerlessness. And then anger and resentment. And then what happens, and this is the amazing thing about Evergreens, that then who eventually gets up in power is the most narcissistic, sociopathic individuals completely dominate this entire oppression, oppressed thing. The person with the right uh, characteristics can now manipulate everybody. And if they're charismatic enough and articulate enough, everybody has to follow along because anything mm. else is violence. And you see that now with Peter Bogosian, who's a professor at the uh, Portland State University. Um, he's been writing about how this ideological faction within his college of these critical social justice scholars are now construing any criticism as harassment, which is incredibly sociopathic. And narcissistic. That means that you can never question this person 
that they can always call you out and always mm -hmm. dominate you and push their ideas, which are very invasive as we see upon everybody else. So there's, there's, there's a lot of, I think, I think you're really on the right track. And this is kind of the place I try to go to, because we can analyze all these structures from the, the systemic and the institutional to the rhetorical, all these different moves. But it's like, well, what are we trying to do here? And mm -hmm. where are we all the same? And you go back to Martin Luther King Jr.'s, you know, I want to, judge people based on the content of their character. And mm -hmm. what does that even mean? Like, I, I think that that phrase is tossed around in the uh, anti-woke discourse and the classical uh, liberal discourse, but we have to really get down to like, okay, what, it, what is it to have a content? And, and I love how you're, you're bringing up like these vibrancies and, and this, these feelings, these phenomenal realities that we inhabit and that we can choose to go through. And then mm -hmm. somehow that creates a character. And what mm -hmm. is a character? And then you, you actually have to go through, well, what is, a, what is a character in relationship to? It's reality or God or the spirit. And then that's what I used to guide me when I was sitting through all these, you know, these, these, trainings where people want me to look at people's race and their sex and their gender and, and mm -hmm. label them correctly. I'm like, I want to see the individual mm -hmm. first. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, there's all this pattern recognition, woman, man, black, white, and then, and then more importantly than black and white is their body posture and their tone mm -hmm. of voice. Like, where are you coming from? Like, wh what's your state? You know, like that's how I assess somebody. What is your state? And then I'm like, well, I'm going to speak to the who you are. And I had a lot of time with children working in preschool for a long time. So I kind of have this, I just, I kind of see who they always are. Mm -hmm. You know, th that's who I want to contact, connect with. And there's always these barriers and stuff. And my job as a communicator is to break through those barriers and make a connection, which is through humor or through some version of love, joy, or peace. That's how you make the connection. Not all this pattern recognition, all this bias stuff and anti-bias stuff, all that stuff gets right in the way of that connection. Speaking of connection, are you still connected? Yes, I'm still connected. Yeah. Um, no, I think that makes so much sense. And I always found it really interesting when people hyper-focus on, on identifying as, as these things that are immutable. Like you can't change it. Well, you can't change what race you were born. You can't change um, mm. what sex you were born. And we're so focused on that as being so, I guess, um, definitive of who you are. And if you spend any time with spirituality or with religion or and even creativity with the, too. Yeah. Create. Yeah. With any kind of introspective work, you realize you're not, those things don't really matter, I guess, to a point. Like I don't walk around all day thinking that I'm a woman. Like I just, I'm, I know I'm one and it's, <laughs> it, it doesn't, it's not an active part of my thought process throughout the day. I'm sure it probably defines a lot of my behaviors or decision-making, but it's not something that I'm like hyper-focused on. I'm not hyper-focused on my race. Um, I mean, I don't know. I just, there's so much more that's interesting about me or about you or about anybody than these immutable characteristics. And it's almost like yeah. we don't want to explore that territory or maybe we just simply don't know the answers to that. So then we're just... This is I think who that I am. There's ways of establishing spaces for that discourse, those discussions, and that intermingling of humans to happen. I think that we have been 
kind of like the the cheese of our society has been smushed through the grater of social media. <laughs> and there are different technologies that are emerging. I, I, I see you on Clubhouse. Um, I think that that's a really good, I've, I've been learning a lot. I've been learning a lot about uh, African-Americans uh, and, and their communication style and the way that they talk and the way that they, even the way they interrupt one another. And, uh, and then, and also, so all their, all their behavior and their, their vibe but then also they're, where they're coming from and like, you know, th their experiences and trying to deal with their position as a group in a society. So there are realities to identity. There are mm -hmm. realities to all these different intersectional standpoints. There is a reality there. Right. The intersectionality based on critical theory is only good at breaking people apart. It does not provide that coming together other than coming together to exhaust our oppression. And again, to return to Evergreen, what I saw behind the scenes, well, behind the, what everybody saw, was that the, the college took up this social justice goal and they started becoming more and more empathetic and more and more concerned with people expressing their emotions. And everything kind of turned into a therapy session. Mm -hmm. But there was no real good, solid training by anyone mm -hmm. on how to be a good therapist, let alone a good group therapist. Mm -hmm. So part of the thing that's broken with the Evergreen State College footage, that protest, is that you see half of a therapy session. You see kind of half like that that the cathartic release, but you don't see anything other than demands for obedience at the end of that. You don't see any mm -hmm. filling that circle of coming, coming back together because they can't do it because it's based on something that denies that in some way. In some way, there's something in critical social justice, intersectionality and critical theory. And, you know, with the dash of postmodernism, it's really good at corroding. And so it doesn't provide the spaces. It provides a lot of friction, spaces where friction happens. So I don't think we have the, I think part of our work has to be, is to bring up voices. I do it one-on-one, -on -one, bring up voices and, and interview in a relaxed manner, all these different people from different identity groups. Um, but but the, there can be communal spaces. We have to go, but we have to have an overarching sense of community. And that itself is being corroded mm -hmm. actively by mm -hmm. this, all these theories that are saying it's all oppression, it all needs to be torn down. So without that balloon, mm -hmm. faulty though it may be, without that dome of, I don't know if America, but at least the human, mm -hmm. let alone like if you want to go higher than you can say God, which I think gives me personally more access to more states of being. But I am American, but I can I have to find that way of being together with people. And we need to work on on that structure so that all these identities and positions and and then all the problems and then hopefully some of the solutions can come to light. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there's there's a need for I don't know how to say this. There's a need for those spaces. Absolutely. And I think everyone has experiences that um are really shitty and they need to find people that can relate to those shitty experiences, right? It just, it yeah. helps you feel normal and seen and accepted and all of those beautiful things that we need. But when yeah. I'm saying that it's, mm. it's almost counterproductive to hyper-focus on these, these identities that we can't change like race or yeah. gender is because yeah. 
if you scope out, like when you said, if you scope, scope out to God, right? If you scope out yeah. that far, we're all the same. We all came from the same space and yeah. we're all made of stars. Like that is, that is our, yeah. our DNA. It sounds like a Moby song, but it's true. And we, there is this, <laughs> there's this oneness and we all return to the same place. So when we focus on these things that are our Achilles heel, right? As, as a country, like race is mm. definitely our Achilles heel. It's something that mm-hmm. it's still very raw for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can get, it's a lot harder to, to arrive at that place of oneness or that place of love or that place of, have you ever done those? Do you meditate? No, no. So there's a lot of um, meditations that Joe Dispenza does and he's uh he's like a world renowned leader when it comes to like self healing and he does like seminars all over the world. And some of the meditations he does, um, my husband does all the time. They're like two hours long and it's trying to become no one. So it's like, who are you when you become no one, when you detach yourself from this meat sack of a body, right? That's, you're going to exist further than like this, once this thing is dead and gone, you, you don't cease to exist. There's a soul or a spirit or an energy that, that lives on. Right. So what is that? That's the important mm-hmm. thing. That's the intelligent thing. That's the sense of I. I think a lot of times we get, I guess, confused that this is I, right? Like this body is I, but you were something yeah. before and you're going to be something after. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when we focus on our differences, it's so much harder to, again, get to love, which is the more positive place. And that's what we all want. Those people that are so angry and screaming and borderline violent they just they need love more than anybody and that was something i think that you're really good at is when you were um narrating some of your videos on the evergreen stuff you were talking about this one professor who just she was very angry she had a lot of shouting um i can't remember her name and you were explaining why her mental state was where it was at and you did a really good job at explaining her reality and her where she was coming from and i think a lot of people don't do that so i really appreciated that insight um i know and I think, what you're talking about well yeah what was her name that poor woman she left evergreen she got a settlement two hundred fifty thousand. and then wow. she goes to this art community or whatever in tulsa and ends up suing them for the same thing she <laughs> or she's just carrying around her trauma and so where's that where's the, who's the common denominator there right yeah yeah. Uh, I had this, <laughs> speaking of, I had this, um, we're looking for a new nanny right now. And I had this mm. application the other day and she was like, okay, so I think it's important that I let you know that I have a service dog, which is fine. You know, I don't have an issue with that. She said, service dog is for, um, for a lot of childhood trauma that I've had. So very specific. And, uh, she mm. says, I've had a lot of experience with negative situations and I'm really good in them. Uh, specifically hospitalizations, traumas, abuse, and names all these things. And I was like, whoo, I do not want that energy in my house or around my family. Sounds like you've had a rough go. I didn't, and obviously not interviewing this person, but there's a lot of people like that where that's their normal and they don't, I guess take a I guess maybe you can't when you're in that state, but you you don't take a breath step back and say, 
who's what's the common factor that keeps here? Is it me yeah. or is this experience unique? If this experience is unique, maybe there's you know something else yeah. happening. But if it's a pattern, then maybe there's something I have to look inside of myself to try to break that pattern. There is an aspect of activist culture that attracts traumatized individuals and then concentrates that trauma and then acts as a justification for maladaptive behaviors related to that trauma. Basically, a whole bunch of acting out to solve the world, but not really understanding that you're trying to solve something in here. Mm. It's very clean your room. It's very clean your room. I know. I love that rule. (laughs) Make your bed. Uh, I I never do that, but... I'm really bad at that too. Every time like Jordan Peterson really mad at me right now. Um, trying to change the world podcast, but my bed's not made. Um, I was definitely one of those people though. I got, I got sucked into one of those, the gender women's gender studies classes when I was um, a senior. I just like, I needed that, you know, random yeah. class to get a credit. What, what, or what, what caught you or captured you about that? I thought it was going to, so I was a psych major, so I thought it was just an extension of a psychology class. Um, I didn't really know anything about it. And I heard that it was a fun class. That's what I heard (laughs) from like other people. And I was like, I don't know, I need an extracurricular and I'll just throw it in and maybe I'll learn something about, you know, women and sexuality. And they show you day one was this awful, awful video of like this, uh, the story of this trans person getting murdered. And that's where they opened. And I'm like crying. And I'm like, the world is this evil place. Me and um, I was in South Carolina. So, you know, they're talking about how awful the South is, which is weird at a Southern school. Um, And you just, you get so emotionally invested in Mm -hmm. these stories because they're just these individual stories. It's not to take away from the violence or those wrongdoings. because obviously no one's condoning that, but Mm -hmm. they make it seem a lot more prevalent. I think that it is. So what's actually ironic, or I guess what started, um, I guess for me to see things differently because I, I went from thinking everything was bad and evil and, um, not accepting. So I actually started, a like I can't remember the name of it I think it was called like the a, it was like a pride group or something like there was no no spaces for um like the gay community on campus at all like it got kind of shut down and whatever I was like okay I'll do this like I'll create this this space and then I'll give it to someone who's actually a member of this group because I don't belong as the president because I'm straight so I create this this group hand it over to somebody else and we had like you know like tables out on the lawn and people were signing up and creating like meetings and there was food and drinks and like everyone was so nice. Like everyone was so nice. There was not a single negative interaction that I had at all. And I was like, okay, well maybe this place isn't as bad as that teacher said because no one was like, move your booth or get out of here, slur word or not. Everyone was like, this is a party. We had music and it was wonderful. And I'm pretty sure that club is still open. So that's awesome. But, Hmm. um, yeah, it just kind of showed me like the world's not as bad as yeah. those classes tell you that it is. And I don't yeah. know why we're trying to scare the shit out of young people before they go into the real well, world. I was, me and a friend, Mike Nino, were tooling around with writing a script, trying to take 
our knowledge and put it into a dramatic form. And I had this, uh, I kept on returning to this image of this girl who's 18 or 19 and she shows up on campus just like bright eyed, bushy tailed. And she gets involved in one of these courses that starts to break her down and show her these evil things and just reduces her state and just bombards her with negativity and then mm -hmm. bombards her with love and the negativity of the world and love from us and negativity from the world. And just like watching this, this really innocent peppy girl, like be transformed into this raging harpy, you know, like going around and like demanding people uh, change their behavior and just watching that happen just to show that the output of a lot of this stuff there there are psychological tools or kind of these reprogramming ways i don't know if they're emergent i don't know if they're intentional but they mm -hmm. they people are being turned into this stuff like what you were saying really brought that up to me and there was um one other thing you're making me think of about uh, oh yeah deborah so so deborah so you've had her on yeah, I've had her yeah. on twice, and then she oh, actually great. just had me on her podcast that just yeah. launched. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, she's wonderful. I, I love have her. her on again. Yeah. I was talking to her and Abigail Schreier, uh, and they both came out with books about, uh, well, Abigail Schreier talked about uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria within uh, teen girls, mostly. And then Deborah wrote about gender. And we were talking about the school system because they both get into the school system and the stuff that's being pushed there and how it's not based on reality, how this all this gender stuff is not based on reality. It's based on feelings. Do you feel this way? Do you feel that way? It's not, it's, it, it's the reality is over there, but your real self is over here. So it is religious. It's very religious. They do, they do everything except say in these documents that are in public schools that your gender is your soul. That's every, they do everything except say that it's your soul, but they're describing the soul, which is this gender binary thing that's fluid and exists outside. Anyways. So I'm trying to, I was asking Deborah, I'm like, well, why teach, why teach this irreality? Why why put this distinction between all this language about sex, which is really useful in the real world, really mm -hmm. useful for understanding how it works, understanding the consequences, understanding if it's violated too, which is one of my big worries about this gender stuff, occluding uh, sex, sex is that you now have these children who can't even name if they're being molested anymore. Because now there's all this language about, well, maybe it was okay because this and that and everything's fluid. Anyways, but Deborah's point was that once you teach this to children or any sort of thing that's not based reality to children, they don't they can't verify anything themselves. They have to verify it through this outer system that you can then control. They can't verify physical reality anymore. Mm -hmm. They're in this world that you then control, and then you have access to dictating and they're completely reliant on you to tell them what reality is. It's a very, it, you know, I don't know if that's intentional or not. She didn't say it was intentional or not, but the effect is that you have a bunch of young people who aren't really connected to their bodies, let alone to their souls. So there is like this, this broken religion, like you're saying, when, when you're talking about the soul, you're talking about the body. I understand that. I, I have experiences of that. I have experiences of before life, after life. You know, mm -hmm. I understand myself as a continuum, mm -hmm. but there's all that, there's all that, there's all that in there too, but it's dressed up in all of this other stuff. 
And then I see the action of that is that it doesn't locate the agency and the reality and the personal experience. It locates it in all these terms, all this language that's always melting in this postmodern way with all this oppression that's animating everything. So there's just something weird that's very spiritual about it, very Gnostic about it, uh, but it, it's hidden. So I trust it even less because they hide it. Yeah, that's the, that's where the whole thing on gender is it makes you dizzy. Oh no, we we ended up in gender somehow. Yeah, we turned yeah, that we did, we did. <laughs> it makes me. I've read I've read Dr. Deborah So's book. Um, she writes it in a very digestible way. But unless you come from that world or constantly carry a notebook with these stats or um, like the scientific findings, it's very dizzying. And then you have these people mm -hmm. that talk about fluidity. Where I struggle with it is. Well, first, do you think that the soul has a gender? Like once you leave you your body? Story. Yeah, please. I, can I love tell you stories. Story. Okay. So um, I have a spiritual practice. Um, it's called Subud. Uh, or, yeah, and it's, it's a contraction of three Sanskrit words, meaning Susila, Bodhi, and Dharma. Um, but it's based on the actual practice is a direct receiving where I, where I relax and then I receive something. It's usually, it starts as an energy, as a tingle, and then it kind of rises up into song and dance or words or thoughts, you know? So it's this something that's coming from inside of me out. Uh, mm -hmm. And that suits me and I get a lot out of it. And there's this really cool thing where every once in a while you get an insight. And I was, I was in this really relaxed state one day. This is a while ago. I was in this relaxed state and I was, I was curious. I'm like, well, what is my man, my masculine side? And I just felt it just from a very quiet place. I just felt my masculine. And then I asked, well, what is my feminine? And from that say, I just felt that. And there were two distinct energies. Mm -hmm. Like there was this femininity and this masculinity. And I like, well, what is it like? What is what am I like? What is my state like when those are when those are in harmony? Mm -hmm. And I felt really, I just felt complete. I felt like totally relaxed, calm, engaged soft and hard at the same time in mm -hmm. a way it was very it was just it was amazing so i think that you know i have a lot of masculine functions in the world i probably have more masculinity than femininity i don't go into that gender stuff because it's so romantic but when i when i write my fictions and i have a female character i project my femininity into that vessel and there's different females you know, they're, they're not all just one female. There's all these, some of them are really scary. Some of them are really awesome. Some are beautiful. You know, some are powerful. Some are weak. Some are sad, you know. And then when I write my men, I kind of locate my more masculine form. So I play out my gender through fiction. I locate mm -hmm. it in fiction. And then I have the interaction of the masculine and fiction in a symbolic world that hopefully, eventually, someday might be digestible by other people or might be entertaining or enlightening to other people because I'm communicating something by using those symbols. So it does make sense to me as a narrative form, but going around the world and feeling my gender this, and my gender that, and then demanding that everybody see that part of me, it's like, no, nah, that's, that's unartistic. I will, I will evoke that feeling in you, but I'm not going to demand anything. That's unartistic. That's a violation mm. of the artistic principle. Yeah. I don't know how I like, we got there. What's your gender I like, soul? I like that where you say that you're going to evoke it instead of demand it. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's that's, what, that's what the artist is supposed to do. Yeah. So that, I feel like that concept is, I think 
that the idea of gender or whether you want to talk about, you know, the divine feminine, the divine masculine, which is terms mm-hmm. you hear a lot now, or just those mm-hmm. energies in general. I think a lot of that's probably attached to ego. And what they say mm-hmm. is that the ego dies with the body. It's not part of the soul. Like it's its own thing. Because okay. um, huh. I don't think a dog walks around and is like, I'm feminine and I'm, you know, like they know that they're a female, but it's not like, yeah. It's not like I can wear dresses or I can wear lipstick or whatever is traditional in in your culture, right? Which kind of goes against the idea that, you know, that it, I don't know where I was going with that, but. um, Well, I I have a boy cat and a girl cat and they are definitely one's a female, one's a boy, but they all, they, they're not all, not all females are female, not all males are masculine and cats, but there's definitely differences between them. There's definitely differences, but I'm saying like, they're not going around demanding that other cats recognize their femininity. (laughs) No. no, You know what I mean? Like it's not, it just is. (laughs) It just, it just is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But when it comes to like souls, I don't think so. I don't think that a soul hmm. has a gender. I think that's tr- you, that's a human experience. Have you, it's here for the human experience. Have you felt that? Have you experienced like that state of, of non-duality in a way? Briefly. I've yeah. had I've had like dwindling moments. So yeah. um what I do, so I I try I'm trying to make this a more regular thing, but I go to this thing called BioCyberDot and it's it's brain training. Can you say so that in bio cybernaut? Bio cybernaut. Um, but it's it's the coolest thing. I think if every single person could go, the world would be a better place. Everyone would be happier, healthier, wealthier, all of the things. But when you're there, it's kind of like you're doing like really deep meditations for what I would say a couple hours at a time in a compl- almost like almost sensory deprivation. You do have neurofeedback so you can hear your brain waves but that's it um but other than that it's like a pitch black room and you're sitting and you're not you know there's not a lot of stimuli happening no not in salt it's just so it's in it's in like a a a very small room it's completely once they turn the lights off it's completely black it's like double doored you're you're connected to the wall behind you with your neurotransmitters and they come out as Uh, an auditory um, feedback response. So you can kind of hear like, okay, I'm producing alpha in my right occipital or my right frontal and I'm producing Mm -hmm. it in my left um, temporal, whatever. And let's try to get, you know, cohesion going around. It's this really cool thing that you just try to purposely manipulate your brainwaves. Um, And when you're in these really deep meditations, whether you're in a high alpha state or a high theta state, um, because he offers like multiple kinds of trainings, there is a sense that you're no longer in your body. It's almost like your body disappears and you're just experiencing, you're just experiencing these noises. Mm-hmm. So it, in those moments, I'm not, I'm not even Candace. I'm not even, I'm not mm-hmm. a woman. I'm, I'm just the observer. Yeah. And it's like, that's, yeah, it's the only way you can, I can really explain it. So when you get to those levels, you realize how silly all of these things are. But where I was going with that with the gender thing is if the soul doesn't have a gender, then part of it is like, okay, well, it can, you know, gender is fluid and it can change and it's this elusive thing. I feel like they're kind of using that as 
leverage, I guess, to manipulate the human experience. And I think two things can be true at the same time. I think that your soul can not have a gender, but while you're here having your human experience, I think that you're born into the body that you are for a purpose. I think Mm -hmm. that there are certain lessons, hardships, and gifts that come out of that. I don't think life is supposed to be easy. I don't think coming from my own experience that, you know, growing up in a female body is not the easiest when you're going through puberty and you have all of these ads being thrown at your face with these gorgeous women that all look like Giselle. Like it's a very uncomfortable time, right? And part of the journey is to, is to have love and appreciation for your imperfections and be okay Mm. with everything that is uncomfortable. Mm. Um, So I think, yeah, the soul can be genderless, but while you're here in this human experience, that there's two genders and by trying to make that any more confusing than simply saying that it's to kind of hide from your purpose or your truth or the reason that you're here on this earth. Well, I think what you bring up with the ego is a key is a key word. Like, cause there's a lot of every Sunday Twitter props up some sort of LGBT plus plus um, hashtag and mm-hmm. you go over to it. It's uh, yesterday was LGBT cuties, right? And and all it is is a bunch of young people taking sexy photos of themselves. It's just like a whole stream of people looking for adoration, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just like it's to bring awareness of what that you're attractive or <laughs> available or you want some sort of recognition. So that, that, and that's really really shallow. But this realm of gender it, or this this codification of this concept of gender into some sort of reservoir of self and then of connectivity through all these other genders and then sexualities too. Uh, 10-year-olds now are having these conversations like, what's your sexuality? You know, like, are you pan? Are you bi? Are you, you know, pharaoh gender? You know, like you're attracted to magnets, you know, or what? what is it? Um, and, you know, which is disturbing on a couple levels, but you just see how far this idea has gotten where you have, and I was bringing up that example because I was interviewing a philosopher, his kid, his 10 year old kid, you know, through zoom after the teacher left, all the kids started talking about their sexualities. And I've talked to Sasha Ayad about this. Who's a therapist for teenagers and her big insight, one of her main insights, she's very insightful. So I shouldn't say her main or major insight, but one of her insights that she gifted unto me was that, this a lot of the gender stuff specifically regarding females uh going through rapid onset gender dysphoria or a lot of gender issues that females are experiencing is because they their mind is developed and and plugged into the internet and they're getting all this data that's not sensual anymore uh, it's it's all verbal or you know or even porno, pornography which is removed from the body so they're getting all this uh, this information. And then they're being asked, well, what is my desire? What do I desire? Am I a lesbian? Am I gay? What am I? And mm. you, I've spoken with a lot of detransitioners, like uh, who, uh, females who uh, did steps to become uh, men or to take hormones or at least to identify as males. And some of them turn out to be lesbian at the end. And w- I try to respectfully ask, well, 
to what degree was your desire involved in this? To what degree did you even have a sexuality before they had all these terms? And a lot of them don't, didn't even actually feel any desire for anybody. It was all up here into what they are. It was all this identity stuff. So there's, Mm -hmm. there's this mismatch where the cart is leading the horse. The horse isn't even ready and the cart's already going downhill. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, In in a way. So uh, I forgot my original point, but gender seems to be this way for, it's this new language that's really hip that people are exploring right now. But ultimately, you can look at all their byproduct, and it's been going on for ages. Like, this is nothing new for a guy to wear lipstick. David Bowie, you know, and all these guys. It's, it's a long tradition. That doesn't mean you're not a man. Right, It doesn't exactly. mean you're not a woman. But what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? To what degree do we need men's only spaces? To what degree do we need women's only spaces? And I'm not just talking bathrooms. I'm talking clubs and activities. Mm-hmm. To what degree mm-hmm. do we develop when we're in a room in a space with our own sex? And to erase sex bars us from exploring that. And maybe bars us from a lot of evolutionary data that gets unlocked when we're among our own subkind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those spaces are are vital. I think they're absolutely vital, especially when you're younger and you're growing up. I think I was listening to a podcast. It might have been uh, Brett Weinstein's, but I could be mistaken. But he was talking about the importance of men's spaces. Um, and I don't, I mean, I'm very ignorant to that because I'm not a man. So I've never been in men's only spaces. And it's funny because the narrative was always like that sexist, right? So the the club hmm. clubhouse or um, country club were members of like they have a men's yeah. only 16th hole and a women's only space. And we're like, yeah. well, that's, you know, that's so sexist that the women can't go into that room because that's the only room with a bar. Um, so yeah. it's very easy to, to break it down and say, well, they're just trying to exclude us. Yeah. But then you listen to his podcast and he's like, there's a lot that happens in men's only spaces. Like we, we can correct each other's bad behavior in private, mm-hmm. right? So we don't have to chastise you on Twitter and ruin your reputation yeah. and say, hey, yeah. like you're acting like a dick. We need to fix this. Or, you know, this behavior yeah. is not acceptable. So there's that aspect of it. There's um, just like certain jokes that aren't going to land well, maybe with women. There's ways to bring each other up. There's networking. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot. There's sharing your experiences as a man. And the, right? the energy is very, to, to speak energy wise, mm-hmm. like the energy of a women's space and a men's space, really different. I've had experiences of like being shown that I don't belong in women's spaces. And, <laughs> and just like dreams about my energy intruding on the female. And that I, I, there's parts of me that I can't suppress that would dominate a female group. I'm more beady and they're more sing-songy it was just mm-hmm. i've had experiences about that like kind of visceral experiences on that level but also socially and all of that stuff right yeah. and those are all undeniable so i think it's silly to say that those places can't exist or that you know it's just it's causing exclusion or whatever because there's plenty of shared spaces yeah and i yeah. think no one mentions that like almost every yeah. space especially yeah. now because everything's digital is a shared space yeah. but i think it's interesting that you when you were talking about that therapist she was saying that because so much stuff is online that that's kind of creating confusion and that makes a lot of sense because you're not having that energetic connection or where you are mm. experiencing what it feels that what attraction feels like right yeah, it's different yeah, yeah, even if yeah. you're watching porn which it obviously is meant to make you feel certain things it's not yeah, the same yeah. and they've done fMRIs it's, the brain is different when you watch porn and orgasm than when you orgasm with a person there yeah. there's actually yeah. a, a neural difference 
Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the stuff like the lockdown and not spending time with people because now we're all so scared of getting germs. Uh, I think it's going to be really detrimental to this because if we're already seeing a hmm. rapid onset with young girls specifically, I wonder if that's going to get worse now. I heard rumors that actually some of that, I, I haven't seen any studies and stuff, but I've seen because of the communities that I'm connected to through my uh through my exploration of it. So it is uh, kind of a selection bias on my behalf, but it seems that without that social pressure, some of the uh, identifying as trans is leaking. There's actually some coded articles coming out uh, that I've seen the last few days about women saying, I don't feel queer anymore. And then they get a haircut from their boyfriend. Like, okay, oh, oh, I'm oh, oh, you, right, I right. saw a tweet that you did. Like, <laughs> my my hedge <laughs> my hedge is feeling the same way so i went out there with some clippers and a half hour later i have a queer lawn again <laughs> right so what's that yeah, my queer with there was another article that i saw my queer without anybody seeing me or does mm -hmm. my my i'm losing my gender identity because nobody's seeing me so gender identity is a stand-in for con for connection or some sort of filter on connection that that for some reason has gone really viral. Hidden behind that is some queer theory, which I don't think is actually manifesting in the actual social dynamics of social media and stuff. And you have those TikTok videos. You have these weird just hive minds that are going around and messing with all these ideas. The only problem is, is that now we have the technology to inject all these hormones into yourself with consequences that people aren't necessarily capable or really thinking about or are being minimized in those communities. It's not that big a deal. So there's a lot of things that are not good because of the way that we can affect our reality onto our bodies imperfectly now, but permanently. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think is alarming that they're not being more honest about. So I would assume that a big part of your sexuality and how you identify as to like, whether you're a man or a woman or you're gay or, or you're straight, whatever, a lot of that has to do with your ability to sexually connect with somebody else, right? Like I'm straight because I want to sexually connect with men or whatever the example is. Yeah. But when you do these transitions, a lot of the times I was talking to um, a couple of people on, because I've done a couple gender episodes and I'm still dizzy about it, but it can, <laughs> the chances of you not being able to perform sexually, I mean, that goes up a lot. Like I, yeah. I wish I had the statistic in my head, but I, it was definitely over 50%. Like there's a good chance you can never get an erection or, or you can never have an orgasm. So what is the point of doing that surgery? How is that going to make you happy or fulfilled or lead a, a healthy life? Yeah. I don't know. And yeah. to make that decision when you're 10 is absurd. Well, absurd. Yeah. You're not making that decision at 10. No, your parents. Like, yeah, you yeah. can't actually make that decision. Like informed consent, you can't do that. The UK, uh, through uh, their Kira Bell case, ruled that children are not capable of making such a profound decision on their life, the America society. But you know what? People, the uh, hormones are being advertised on my channel now. It, there's I a huge industry. It's trillions of dollars for this lifelong medicalization. And, and that is something that needs to be brought up. We need to have conversations. I've tried to do, I could do more work on this, but with actual trans people, 
and detransitioners and parents and husbands and wives and all that stuff to really just map out the territory because the activist lens collapses everything into uh, my way or death. Give me hormones mm -hmm. or give me death, mm -hmm. which is just the worst, most irresponsible way of guiding our society towards a future. Have you had Buck on your podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Have you? Oh, I was gonna say, yeah. 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 He's a great guest. Great. Great. Um, yeah. Really great guest. Um, yeah. He was saying, and like, if I ever took my kid to a doctor and they were saying, give, give them hormones or they're going to kill themselves. He's like, I would get my kid out of there so fast that I would sue that doctor. And I was like, how are more parents not having that mindset? So with the, with the mm. advertising, do you know if that's showing up if the viewer is, cause you know how you can tick like kids YouTube or whatever. Okay. So does, does that still yeah, show up? I, I, I don't do kids YouTube. If you do kids YouTube, you don't get any comments. And plus my content is not for kids. So I'm being honest, but I'm also allowing more interactivity, but what those ads, I'm not putting those ads there. That's algorithmically generated. Right. So that is some algorithm watching somebody looking at a lot of gender and transition videos and saying, okay, maybe you would like this product. My, so that's just how it works. But that, that these products are being sold on YouTube. So you can watch all these videos, and this is what happens with a lot of the detransitioners, a lot of transitioners do. Very young, they just start watching all these videos about these really charismatic uh, people talking about their depression, talking about their not fitting into society, how this is mm -hmm. the solution. And then they have these ads like, inject this now, inject this now, inject this now. It's just like, it's really screwed up. And you know and, what's really scary is when you're but, watching things for a long period of time, your brain goes into a theta state, like a high hmm. theta state. And mm -hmm. when you're in that state, it's a lot harder to really filter. Malleable? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. And it's a lot harder to filter bullshit from from yeah. facts. So you are a lot, like you said, more malleable and more susceptible to advertising. That's that's reckless. Do you? Okay, okay. This is this is a. This is the dicey turn in the conversation. Oh boy. Okay. Lock if you're up. doing if you're doing these conversations that last an hour, maybe two hours, maybe you're gonna rogue in it and do a three and a half hour uh that's session. my goal. So you get into um the the audience, probably the, most of the audience goes away, but you you have like a good hundred people listening through the whole thing. So mm -hmm. with your knowledge that they're in a theta state. Right. They're relaxed. They're malleable. They're they're just purely ingesting. Probably their body's engaged in something else. They're kind of in the state that we're in right now. Mm -hmm. We're in a really relaxed. I feel like we're really relaxed. We're just kind of mm -hmm. going back and forth. What is your responsibility toward those individuals that are in that state? What would you like to give them? What is important for you to give them? Or like if you're aware of that, what are you going to intend to do with that knowledge and then so, that power that you're having? I my goal is to always just share what I, what are facts? What is my opinion? Not to, not to muddy those waters because I think a lot of people um, okay. will try to say like their opinion is fact. And I think okay. that's irresponsible. So ethic so, toward data. Right. Toward, yeah. Just being honest upfront about like, what's okay. my opinion and what is this, the data as of today. Um, and then for me, I would say my mission statement of the podcast is to just create more curiosity in people, right? Mm -hmm. So like mm -hmm. have people ask questions and not just say, this talking head told me this, so I have to 
to take it as as truth or to agree or whatever it is go along mm. with um and then also to show the humanity behind people especially people that we disagree with so for me like i'm obviously a, what's considered a controversial person shocker um so to show like my humanity if i have other guests on like i had wayne dupree on um and aubrey huff both which were pretty controversial guests i didn't really know that but to show uh-huh. their their human side and uh-huh. to get you to i guess maybe question fundamentally fundamentally held beliefs that maybe aren't yours right so to pick apart what's your programming and where your core beliefs like where where's that authentic self um and then just get people to more to more of a love vibration so Mm. all good stuff yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah. i i i dovetail i think i I, everything that i'm doing is aligned with that i like i like the uh what you were talking about that that pyramid peace and love and joy and alternating between those Mm -hmm. not love too heavy but like (laughs) like that that community that bond is always mm-hmm. possible that connection i guess i guess mm-hmm. and then that that love in the sense of the ad- admiration of that human being that we're witnessing together mm-hmm. that we're experiencing together and then the joy is joy is like that would be that would be the thing like if i have an aspiration like like being able to provide that to the world would be amazing that's a beautiful aspiration. I'm actually yeah. reading the book Joy right now. It's with the oh. Dalai Lama and the Arch. Oh, you've read it? No, I don't know. I'm just in the Joy stance now. Oh, you're like okay. I'm I'm gonna take it in. Joy. Um, so far it's really good. And I would highly recommend it. So it's with the Dalai Lama and the Archbishop. I can't remember his name. Oh, really? So sorry, but yeah, you should check that one out. That's uh, so far so so and good. And joy. then, Is yeah. there any tidbits of that? It's kind of ex. It's explaining that the difference between like joy and happiness, like happiness is usually based on external factors where joy is more of an internal state. And it's kind of what we were saying earlier on in the podcast, which is your inner state kind of creates your reality. So to be in a joyful state is like better for you, better for everybody else. Um, And that it's not as it's not dependent on anything else. It's dependent on yourself. Um, so that one's really good. And then letting go by David Hawkins is really good. So he talks a lot about the hierarchy of emotions and like their vibrational state. Um, and kind of where, have you really, no, I would love to, he wrote, um, power versus force. Power versus horses. Force. (laughs) Oh, force. (laughs) You had to have read that. I feel like everyone read that book back in the day was super, super popular. Um, yeah, he, his work is really, really great. It's changed the way I look at a lot of things. I'll look into him. See, the, the the thing about being a podcaster is you just you talk to the authors, so you can like I, read just half their book, get a sense of mm-hmm. it, and then have them just tell you the book. It's like a I know that's direct audio book right into your brain. I know, and then like having them be able to break it down further is so wonderful. So he's he's on my list, but I feel like he's out of my league right now. So yeah, we'll see. yeah, you never know though. You I just I know. just shoot out things. I mean, yeah, I shouldn't say this, but I'm trying to get Peterson on. I'm trying to get I think Peterson you can on. do it. I think he, I, think I mean, he reposted you though today. Yeah, he did. Yes. He did yeah. repost me and I You're I keep on, on dreaming radar. about him, so I know that he's I know that the eye of Peterson is like uh-huh. Across <laughs> me, you know, so <laughs> Uh-huh. And I think it's so cool. I never would have guessed that you were 
like so into like spirituality or religion or vibrations when you say stuff like that. Yeah. I'm like, it's, that's really awesome. You know, I, I really appreciate, uh, us getting into that. And, um, I, I keep that off my channel, uh, except for live streams. Mm -hmm. Um, just because of the way that it is for me, um, and the way that my audience is formed, but I, I've been doing a lot of podcast interviews where this has come up and I've just been, uh, allowing that side of myself to shine Mm -hmm. or or not shine, uh, probably throb or, uh, (laughs) subtly pulse in No, I love it though. Yeah, I, because looking at your channel, I never would have guessed because it's just a lot more serious, I think. And hmm. yeah, analytical. I like seeing, yeah, 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 yeah. I like seeing yeah. that side. Was that was that something that you just um, like worked on as like an adult later on, or I know you said your dad's a pastor. Are you more traditional? Oh, are you talking about my spirituality? Yeah. Yeah. It's just been a reality in my life that I could never stray too far away from. The, like that's mm-hmm. the guiding principle of yeah. – it's always been the guiding principle of my reality. I mean since I, I had very, very strong spiritual experiences as a kid that showed oh, me the reality cool. uh, behind or underneath my mm-hmm. life. And mm-hmm. then when I strayed from that, you know, growing up and kind of getting disillusioned with things, like I went in a search for that. And mm-hmm. now I go through this – getting closer to that and going away from that, getting closer to that. And mm-hmm. going away. Next month, I'm going to kind of slow down my life and kind of uh, give up alcohol for a while, drink too much, mm-hmm. um, and kind of do a, a version of Ramadan to kind of clean house and, and get back to that that Benjamin, core mm-hmm. Benjamin thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's important really cool. for me. It helps me a lot. Yeah, I feel like you get um, almost like a cheat code when you're like, when you're finally t- hmm. in tune with, spirituality you get those dreams like he said you know like the you can feel the eye of peterson and then all of a sudden he's retweeting you i think you get more of those serendipitous moments when you do focus on your spirituality and that yeah that part of your your life it's when this starts happening for you i was i was listening to a talk by uh the founder of subud uh this weekend and he was talking about that where when you are in tune with i Power of God is the word that, that uh, I use, but we could use whatever you want. When you are close to that, and that is something that's infused, you get you get insights. And I was just thinking about that: like, to what degree can I perfect my interview uh, by by really being attuned to that, and then really just I, I every once in a while I just know the right thing to ask, or mm-hmm. I know the right thing to say, and and you can mm-hmm. feel us go to a different different level and i think it really does it's based on me exploring and and maintaining uh, an awareness at that level of myself and then i can actually really pay attention to the other person and i noticed that in you i noticed that uh in the way that you handled this conversation like you're providing the ground for conversation because the way that you the quality of your attention is allowing this to take shape on, on a different level than other people you know super smart people are really difficult to keep up with, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not super smart. Like James Lindsay or vocal, you know, they're like, Whoa, like, okay, maybe that's the question. No, I don't know. <laughs> I would put you on the same level as James for sure. Yeah. I was, I was just as, um, I guess nervous with my performance with you as I was with James. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 
I didn't know what it's, we were talking about. No, I think I think we did like two interviews this time. Like mm-hmm. we did my interview and your interview. They, mm-hmm. they kind of like they kind of fit together in this one. I didn't know what yeah. to talk to you about. Now I know what to talk to you about. Well, I think that's connection. I think that's the confusing thing when you have someone that has their own podcast. It's to try to figure out what to talk to them about because the, the, yeah. when you have a channel like yours, you hit so many topics, and yeah. it's it's hard to find you right. Like where's Where's Benjamin? Because oh yeah, you know what I mean. Because as a good host, you obviously want to provide a platform for your guests to be able to share. Because that's yeah. I'm here to like learn from you, um, and then add my little tidbits as we go along. It's like not about me. Yeah. So I think that's what makes like a good host, and you do that a lot too, where you let your guests do their thing, and then you chime in when you need to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I was definitely definitely nervous. Because you're this intellect, and I think for me, just finding like this brain in this jar. With you like are though, yeah. I mean that as a compliment. Um, but for me, being able, I'm obviously still fine tuning it because I'm, you know, not even a year in. But being able to just focus on where you're going, and then just where my my genuine curiosity is, and just go there. Because I've tried yeah. the whole format of like making list. a list and making yeah. a note. Like I have a notepad in front of me that like I almost journal before each one just to like let my mind go. Yeah. Um, but anytime I've ever like looked and say, okay, well, what about this? It's just so dull and it doesn't, there's no life there. Yeah. It's too yeah. constricted. Yeah. Every once in a while, I feel like I should have had a question, mm-hmm. but whenever I set up an interview and then people are like, well, what are we going to talk about? I usually just say, I usually say, okay, your life and then your expertise. Right? I want to know who you are. And then here's a couple topics that I'm curious about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then usually they completely forget. And then they just kind of go off and we just go mm-hmm. on an adventure. Like, where are we yeah. going to go? I'll follow you. Oh, what's over there? You know, what does that mean? What's dangling from that tree? Uh-huh. And you just but that's of- how you get more. That's how you get, I guess, deeper conversations. And then you can also have repeat guests because so with Deborah, yeah. for example, she talks about her book a ton, obviously. Like yeah. that's mostly what she's doing on her press runs and when she's doing all of these guest podcasts. When I had her on a second time, we just went somewhere totally different and we were just talking about like sex and um paraphilias and all like any kind of oh, yeah, abnormalities. Yeah. And it was just yeah. like a free for all. And everyone yeah. loved it because they're like, Man, I don't really get to see this unbridled version of her. And I think when you can do that with a guest, it's such a beautiful thing. And then they're more authentic instead of asking you a question that you've probably been asked a thousand times, right? Yeah. It's yeah, like, well, let's, yeah. let's just see where we naturally end up together. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot yeah. more fun Every that way. Every once in a while, I'll land a guest who's popular, and then they'll get the Benjamin treatment. And then I get the uh, comments, the response like, oh, I get to see this other side of this person, you know, because mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't adhere to that level which is the marketing level or the, the, or even like the, the intellectual discourse level uh, where people are kind of having the same conversations over and over and over again. I'm like, well, who are you? Mm-hmm. I mean, with me, with me and James and Lindsay, uh, Jim, James, Lindsay and Wokel, we're getting in. We, we do, I, I do like the regular guests because then you mm-hmm. can start to get a better pattern on each other. And then, it, you know, some people like learn how to listen to you or learn, you know, you kind of craft something like that and then you get more comfortable and you can get totally deeper. So when you find those people that you sync up with, definitely have them on again. 
And then mm-hmm. you get to kind of do a series. I like to meet up with people like some people like once a year and check in, like, where are mm-hmm. you now? Like with the detransitioner girls, especially because they're so young and every year is such a big leap oh, for yeah. them, you know, and then other people like that. Then you get to kind of provide like this archival document on these people over time, which we yeah. lose a lot of. Like with part of the flaw of cancel culture is that it compacts time and humanity into something that doesn't change over time. And I think that that mentality is because we don't witness these people we're attacking as living over time and developing and changing and moving from one idea to another and to mar- to 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 model that for people i think is is a valuable thing oh yeah there's like i said earlier there's no room for forgiveness or grace or growth mm-hmm. and um there was this quote and it's like if you're not totally embarrassed about who you were last year you're not doing enough work um and <laughs> for me that's so true like even even mm. in shorter periods of time I'm like man I can't believe that's my that was my headspace right like I'm totally different like I um I was supposed yeah. to have Johan Arion last week mm. but it just didn't work out he wrote uh, lost connections um mm. he's very difficult to nail I thought I had him and then it just it didn't pan out but he totally changed my beliefs like radical 180 and there's few times in my life where there's been such a a stark difference like in an aha moment Mm -hmm. um i had a cop dad so you know drugs were always drugs were bad right drugs were always bad and you know um, the way america's fighting the drug quote-unquote drug war is the way to go and mexico's this awful place that you know, is just trying to push drugs through our border, yada, yada. Um, I didn't have a lot of sympathy for addicts. I was kind of like, you made your, your bed and just stop, right? Like just stop was my, my belief. Um, and then after listening to him and reading his book and, you know, watching his interviews and all of that, 180, like now I'm like, all drugs should be decriminalized and, you know, we should have these centers where you're giving out heroin to people like crazy things that I was like, those people are madmen and they just want to ruin the, the youth of America. That's what I believed. But after spending time with him through his work, it just it completely changed my mind. So you could go back in time and probably find you know, pieces of me where I'm criticizing addiction or these hard drugs or the legalization, or I should say decriminalization um, of, of all drugs. Who just, who just did that? Was it Washington? Um, uh, Oregon. State? Oregon. Yeah. Okay. Like Oregon, when they initially did that, I was like, what the fuck are they doing? I thought it was the worst idea on the planet, but then I listened to him and all of the data that he was, um, you know, displaying. And I was like, we can't yeah. argue with that. So well, um, as long as you do the other end and take care of all the addicts and provide recovery for them, I mean, mm-hmm. that's the part where it fails, where people don't, uh, the, the uh, state doesn't set up the institutions for, you know, helping people that get hooked on that, you know? Okay. Yeah. So I haven't, I did, I haven't seen what they're doing, but he was talking yeah. specifically about like Switzerland, um, and who was who else was this? Well, was it you know, Portugal? when you use okay, 
when you use European countries as the model, those are really deep cultures. So you're talking about a specific culture in America's its own culture. And even within mm-hmm. America, there's so many different cultures. So there's not that unifying culture. But I, I can't get too deep into that argument, but I'm always kind of like, we're not like Europe, any given country. Mm-hmm. Something else is going to happen. And we we don't have that connectivity. We're very... Mm-hmm we're very scattered we're very we're very independent we're very atomized in mm-hmm. our in our culture and so we i don't know if that lends to us taking care uh, it's one thing to take the lid off the problem but mm-hmm. you, you still have the problem which mm-hmm. is ultimately human nature but you know mm-hmm. human nature is to be lazy and just like <laughs> let the problem fester oh totally but i i definitely think we should try to implement what they yeah. were doing over in switzerland and maybe some someplace small and just keep a super eye and see what happens um but if you like that's a subject you're curious about i definitely recommend checking out that book because yeah. i don't know I, this is like I, a recent yeah, that's switch a whole for me yeah yeah uh, that's a whole mm-hmm. conversation so I, I need to learn more so we'll see what happens in portland but i know yeah. from on the street it's like immediately it's just like okay now we have mm-hmm. even more heroin uh, uh, homeless encampments going on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but Portland's got so many different problems. Uh, yeah. So it's not, not, and I still can't get mail order LSD. I can get all the estrogen I want, but I can't get a single tab of acid. What's up with uh, that? Yeah. That I always wonder where people are getting like all of those crazy drugs. <laughs> like when Rogan talks about doing like DMT, well, I was like, where's he getting that? Well, he's connected. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm like, I want to explore that. I want, but I'm terrified again, cop daughter. So it's like deeply embedded in my, mm-hmm. my subconscious that if I do anything, I'm going to die. Um, <laughs> it's like when the first time I smoked weed, I was 19 and I was convinced that I was, I was going to die like overdose on weed. I oh, was no. so ignorant to it. <laughs> so I was super paranoid. It was a really bad first experience. But yeah, it can be um, pretty. Harrowing. Yeah, it was a lot. But I'm actually supposed to be doing my first uh, psilocybin experience. Oh. Like next month is the goal. Really? I'm really nervous. I'm doing a lot of um, prep work prior to that to make sure that I have like the best experience possible and don't completely lose my mind and just cry and sob for six hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're doing like a little mini girls retreat with oh. this shaman and we're just going to go see what we can find. I'm really excited. But I'm also equally nervous. So yeah, I've made giant strides in my, my belief system in that category. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to, um, Tell the listeners like where they can follow you, support oh. you, like okay. plug away. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is Benjamin Boyce and uh, my podcast is Boyce of Reason. It's found on all the, the various podcast platforms. My YouTube channel is Benjamin A. Boyce. I do a lot of interviews. I have this uh, really intense documentary and a lot of just uh, talking head stuff. Uh, the best way to start me, support me is just check me out. Also, I'm on Twitter. If you like my sentences, I was very spicy today. We didn't get into that, but maybe we will in the future. <laughs> um, and that's at Benjamin A. Boyce as well. Thanks for having me on, Candace. Of course. And thank you for giving me so much of your time. I seriously appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. You can also share this podcast with a friend. It helps my podcast grow and I really appreciate it. I hope to see you next week.